All right, let me say a word of prayer and we'll get going. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth of your word, for the gift of your son, for the promise of eternal life. We pray that you would bless and enrich our time together this morning, our conversation and our fellowship. Build us up in your word and spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We are concluding our our six-week study on the reason for God, um, drawing from materials in this video uh, from Pastor Tim Keller. Many of you probably heard this week, Pastor Keller died this week. He had been uh, battling stage four pancreatic cancer um, for a couple of years, and at the beginning of this past week, went into hospice care and uh, entered the arms of Jesus, I think, on Friday. So um, very timely in that sense, but it's uh, what, what a witness, what a, uh, a life of service to the kingdom, and now, yeah, he's in the arms of the Father. But um, in that respect, we dedicate our Bible study today to the, the memory and life of, uh, of Pastor Keller. What a gift. Um, our last session here, the question that we're ta- taking up, how can God be full of love and wrath? Or alternatively, how can a loving God send anybody to hell? Ooh. But let me introduce it this way. Just read this this week from the Telegraph in England. It said, Gen Z and millennials are more likely to believe in hell than baby boomers, a major study has found. While younger people have lower levels of religious belief overall and are more likely to identify as atheists, they are almost two times as likely, 32% to 18%, as those who are born between 1945 and 1965, to think that hell is real. Hmm. Thoughts on this? What, what, what could account for that? Why do you think younger generations, actually, even though their faith largely is waning, would have more of a, a belief in hell than their parents, baby boomer generation, and so forth? Any theories or ideas? Yeah, Sarah. Yeah. Uh, I find that people my age and younger have a very large sense of accountability and consequence okay. in their actions. Sure. So there's a large justice uh, mindset. Yep. We want things to be just. Yep. And if you want things to be just, you have to understand that if you do bad things, there are consequences. Consequences, sure. Yeah, that makes sense. So, you know, as Sarah's saying, like, for, for us millennials, we've got that strong sense of accountability and consequences and justice, a desire for justice. Well, then it would make sense that there might be eternal justice and consequences as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. Other thoughts? Why this might be the case? Yeah, George. I think, I think there's more questions about hell than there is about heaven. Okay, more questions about hell than there is about, about heaven. Yeah. I think that's, that's probably true. Um, maybe it's easier to wrap our hands around hell. Like, hell, that makes sense. Like, I, I can picture that. Some people, they experience things are like, yeah, like, I already know what hell's like. So, yeah, there are more questions about heaven. Other thoughts, reflections, why, why this might be the case? We should you know, hasten to add, it's still just even for millennials and, and Gen Z, we're still just talking about a third of them that believe in hell. So it's not like they're all falling over themselves to profess this. But it's a lot more than the younger age. Yeah, Laura. We'll say more about that. Well, I mean, you That's interesting. So as substance abuse is on the rise, then with that, there's that, just that sense of, of like the demonic. 
And okay, yeah, I, I believe that hell could be real because I see the way that it can have an effect on people. That's a really interesting point. Yeah, Esther. Well, media, all the TV shows about the demonic. Oh, okay. Is there a, a lot out there? But well, there's oh, quite yeah. a few. Yeah, interesting. So maybe, I mean, um, like, I, I'm a big fan of the show Stranger Things. Any other Stranger yeah. Things fans? Um, Stranger Things, like, there's a supernatural realm. It's basically just the bad side of it, right? We never see any, like, positive supernatural side. So if you are a big Stranger Things fan and that really formed, like, your spiritual worldview, I can imagine you thinking, yeah, there's definitely a hell. I don't know about heaven, but there's definitely a hell. <laughs> yeah, Jim. But if you think about that from that perspective, what is hell? Hell is the ultimate separation from God. So if they don't, if they believe in one and not the other, it's irrelevant. Right. Yes, you're right. But we'll talk about that because there is kind of a conventional view of hell that doesn't quite fit with what the scripture teaches about what is really significant about it. Yeah. Any last thoughts before we go to the video? All right, so really good conversation here, last one. So um, we'll just dig into it as we're going along. You've got a place for notes. So questions that it raises for you, ideas, thoughts, jot those down, and we'll come back after the video and talk about it. So here we go. Everyone who considers Christianity brings heartfelt questions and intellectual objections born out of real-life experiences. They're looking for answers, but even more, they're looking for a safe place to ask their questions. Join me as I meet with a group of people who don't believe in the Christian faith to discuss six of the most common objections to Christianity. Welcome to The Reason for God. to our sixth session, our final session together uh, on the reason for God, and our topic for tonight is in these two questions. How can God be full of love and wrath at the same time? How can God send good people to hell? Uh, just to frame this for a minute, there's plenty of people that say, I can accept the idea of a, a, a loving and forgiving God. I have a lot of trouble accepting the idea of a God who judges people, who punishes them for not believing in him or obeying him, and particularly the idea uh, that the Bible has that God sends people to hell. Uh, they say love, over here, uh, judgment in hell, they don't seem compatible. What do you think? I think what means what I could buy more, let's say I was Christian, is that purgatory exists where you go to purgatory to kind of clean up no matter how many years you have to go there for, where nobody goes directly to hell, where everybody has that chance to kind of wash away their sins. I'm not saying I agree with it, I'm just saying it's something that's much more plausible to me than hell. My, my notion of it is uh, hell uh, and heaven exist now. It's not something after you die or anything. It's not necessarily something that God sends you to, but every at every moment and every action, you have the ability to experience hell and heaven. Are you saying that in, in a fundamental way, in a psychological way, that you could send yourself to hell? Like, if you're mean to somebody or if you wrong somebody, then you end up in a hell. It's kind of like, a, you know, sin is its own punishment sure. type of thing. I, I think if you define hell as how I, with some sort of Christian overlay, 
it's, it's when you're separated from God or separate, there's separation that occurs with you and the loved one when there wasn't a whole yeah. sort of experience. And, I would agree with that. You know, and heaven is when it's together. So I think in any moment when your actions are you know, negative or influence coming from I want to do what I want to do instead of what are we, sort of the larger picture or individual, you are in a certain hell because your ego is taking over. Whereas you know, you're in heaven more when you're sort of really compassionate and sort of acting with others. Let me, let me just say that what you're saying, I think, sheds some light on what the Bible actually does teach about hell. Uh, this, you're going to see that there's a lot of overlap with what Eddie just said. St. Augustine said, sin is disordered love. In other words, not loving first things first, second things second, third things third, things out of order. So, for example, if you love making money and career, which is good, more than your family, You'll alienate your spouse, you know, you, your kids will hate you because you, you put something that was a good thing and you loved it too well in relationship to something else. So there's a breakdown. Now, if there's a God, if there's a God, then you'd have to love him as the number one. So if you uh, rest and put your hope in uh, making money more than God, you'll, there'll be a breakdown because you'll overwork, you'll be anxious. If you love your children more than God, you'll put too much pressure on them. So Augustine would say that if you don't put God first in your life, it leads to breakdown, because you're sort of building your life around yourself. And that's where I think Eddie's right, that self-centeredness does make you miserable. The more self-centered you are in this life, you're miserable. Now, for a minute, let me add the Christian part. Go on for a billion years now. Let's just say you die and you keep on going in that direction. That would really be hell. In this life, it starts. But at the very end, it would be hell. And by the way, that doesn't mean that I don't think that the, the fire stuff in the Bible isn't real. Because I think streets paved with gold means something better than I can imagine. And fire means something worse than I can imagine, but it's very real. So whatever the torment would be from a life not built around God but on yourself going on forever, that's hell. How do I feel about Dr. Keller's definition of hell? Uh, I think in principle, I actually agree with it. It's really interesting. Uh, this kind of goes back to the thing I'm saying is like, I think we're looking at the same elephant. We're just looking at different parts and calling it different things. Um, I think we really actually have in, in its essence a fundamentally similar understanding of these notions uh, of which he terms hell or wrath and love. And for me, it might be separation or not lack of presence or ego. And um, I'm not quite sure, but I, I, I think we actually have quite a bit of alignment. So I was really surprised I guess the thing that I'm struggling with about this is what I think you're describing is very interesting. I actually sort of believe in it in some sense, but it doesn't seem to have judgment involved in it. And even even your definition of disordered love doesn't seem to have an external judgment involved in it. Whereas conventionally, I think of God as making judgments, and even that sort of opening question of like. God is full of love and wrath at the same time, seems to imply a judgment. Yeah, um, that's a very good point. So that which kind of gets me back to my core issue with this is, if you're presuming God is an omnipotent God, or omniscient and omnipotent God, then um, I as a parent, a very uh, not omnipotent or omniscient parent, 
I'm often full of love and wrath, yes. basically, right? I was hoping so it's not a contradictory. Love, being full, you know, full of love or full of wrath is not at all contradictory. It happens no. all the time, uh, sometimes at the same time. John, I, I just think it was somewhat interesting that you're just willing to accept the word of wrath as like a parenting technique. I mean, to me, that's like a very powerful word. I, I mean, I don't think you, I can't picture you laying down wrath upon your children. I, to me, it, it kind of encompasses hatred almost. And, not necessarily where in your case it's probably you're trying to help your child along. It may be frustrating, and you may have to use punishment techniques, but not necessarily wrath. Uh, well, as a parent, you um, wrath. Well, no, you don't use you know punishment techniques. You do very carefully, basically. So uh, I think it's. But there is the combination of love and wanting to help and wanting to do you know to take care of the parent. There is a, it's a very powerful emotion. So. You manage it, basically, as best you can. But it is very, very closely tied up with love. The reason that wrath is uh, <clears throat> something that both John and I can imagine, we're both parents. Wrath really means settled opposition and hatred <coughs> of that which is destroying what we love. So if God created the world, he will hate whatever he thinks is destroying his creation, his people, you know, sin, self-centeredness, injustice. He'll hate it. And I think that's fair to call wrath. It's not crankiness. It's not. It's just. It's not a, you know, an out of control temper. The Christian idea of hell means there's a place at which judgment happens. And what that means is, let's just say you've got a um, an addicted friend. You're you you're angry because you love your addicted friend. It's a little bit like being a parent. That uh, the more you love the child, the more angry you get when the child is doing something destructive. Right. So here you're angry at your addicted friend. You're angry at what he's, let's say, he's doing to himself and so forth. Um, and God looks at us the same way. He's angry because of self-centeredness and injustice. And if, you, if he's loving, he will hate the bad things. Where he would actually judge you is when he stops, when he actually gives you your way. Because the worst thing you could do with an addicted friend is just to, is to say, do what you want. Because then that person, in a sense, is on the one hand, uh, yeah, that person, in a sense, has chosen where they're going. But at the same time, you also have, in a sense, designated them and said, I, I'm going to give you what you want. And that's judgment. It's kind of fair because the person got into that situation. But you actually say, no more am I going to try to break into you. I'm not going to come after you anymore. And I do think Romans chapter 1, which is a St. Paul's uh, book, he says that the worst thing God can do to you is to give you what you want. If you want to live life without God, he just gives it to you. It seems very fair to me, but it is definitely an appointment. It's an act of judgment, and that's, that's in the Bible. I would like to think that um, I'm acceptable to God if I have good intentions, if I have a, a will to being good, if I um, have a will to love, if I um, try hard to be a better person, I think the um, problem I have is if I am required to, to, to worship or am I required to believe in something that I have a hard time believing in. And if I'm condemned to hell because I don't do that, then I have prob problems with that. For me, it's religion has served a, a great purpose, but the purpose is done. The purpose was to to question truth, to question truth, question life. And now I'm at ease with taking the burdens of my own sins. I don't need somebody else to 
to relieve that for me. I don't need to think about an afterlife because I'm scared to live this life. Uh, there's a famous quote that says, people who live a full life aren't scared to die. And, and for me, I'm living a full life and I'm not scared to take the brunt of my sins. I'm not scared to do what I need to do to live this life. What brought me to the conclusion that there isn't a hell is that there is no physical space where this should lie. I know in medieval times we used to think that heaven was up and hell was down. We know that's not true anymore. And I think that the place where there's a presiding anti-God ruling over people's misery, it seems like a not very constructive use of one's imagination. I can't put it any more bluntly than that. Remember how last time I said ethnography was a, 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 a department of anthropology which tried to understand um, a people group from the inside, from the participants' eye view. I would like you to try this then. Could you imagine why it would be good to believe in Judgment Day, in a God that will come to Earth at the end and judge? From the inside, could you see some reasons why it would, it's, it would be actually great as a Christian to believe in Judgment Day. If people feel like they're going to be, they're going to be judged for their actions when nobody's looking, right. it gives them a reason to behave good, which is my point to say that not everybody needs that. Some people are just good. But that's one advantage. I, sir, I, I can totally, and I do, understand how it's incredibly valuable. Um, you know, it, it sort of go, goes along with sort of this uh, structure that we grew up with. There's a parent who, you know, we think is godlike, right? Right. Yeah. And whatever they say is right. And then we move on to principal or teacher, and then we move on to college professor, and then you know we just keep moving up, finding this authority figure above us who's the arbiter of right and wrong. That's I can right. see how it's incredibly nurturing. I think it's an enormously satisfying idea, but I could see how it can be manipulated because I think someone alluded to this before. I don't, there are a lot of injustice in the world and I think a lot of us here try to work to alleviate some of that. Mm -hmm. And so if you think on Judgment Day it's all going to be taken care of, then maybe I want to maximize my satisfaction in life right now instead of tending <coughs> to those who are, you know, I mean obviously then you'll be judged too. So, you know, that analogy doesn't really You're, work. But How did you know I was going to say I know, but you, know, <laughs> but you get my point. So I understand that it is a satisfying idea because it's kind of this idea of delayed gratification, right? So Judgment Day is kind of reckoning it so you control your behavior in light of this goal. I think you, to me, answer your question, your own question, because judgment, the idea of Judgment Day gives me a balance. Because on the one hand, I know that uh, I'm going to face God. But on the other hand, I realize that I don't have to worry about anybody else. That's not my job to, to put myself in God's chair ahead of that time. So actually, I do have an incentive to work for justice, because if God is a God of justice who's going to see it done at the end, I want to be on his side. I want to work for justice. But on the other hand, I don't have the same feeling like my, that, of despair that there's so much injustice out there and I'm only getting this much done. I, I know that eventually it's going to be all right. Also, just it, it separates, uh, Eunice, the idea of judgment and justice, which you were alluding to. I think that I can still work for a general good and make sure that laws or policies are in place, that, or even work strategies, how people can move. But I can also let go of the, my own feelings of being slighted or you know, derided, and, and I can put my energies elsewhere. Miroslav Volf, who is a Croatian, and Miosz, who is the, the, the famous Polish writer, both of them said that it's difficult not to pick up the sword and go get them. If you don't believe that someday there isn't going to be a judgment day, 
Uh, Volf actually says he thinks that the, the belief that there is no judgment day secretly nurtures, secretly nourishes the cycle of retaliation. So he was saying the idea of judgment day actually is a resource for peacemaking. I think just on a kind of day-to-day -day level of disengaging you from these kind of negative uh, thoughts about how somebody wronged you and what you right. can do. I mean, that's something that my mother has always said, just let it go and, you know, it'll take care of itself. And I remember in my late 20s, early 30s, being consumed with feelings of injustice, whatever, and it wasn't healthy for me. Yeah. It didn't do anything for the other person, but, you know, just as a mechanical day-to-day -day life strategy, it sounds like a great way to kind of, you know, put that in someone else's hands. So there's a reason for God. You know, I think the idea of there being a day of reckoning or judgment day, you know, separating the good and the bad or whatever, I, I can't imagine why that wouldn't control our actions. Of course it does. The idea of any kind of a goal changes the way you behave in present day. Um, you know, I think it gives people hope. I think it deters people from behaving in destructive ways. I think there's a sense of fear built into it. And maybe it's the fear that I have problems with because you don't behave in the way that you might because you fear the consequences. I don't know if that's out of love that you're changing the way you're behaving. I don't think I could define myself as not wanting God. I just have a hard time acknowledging that there is a God without any sort of evidence. I don't think I at least have been exposed to enough evidence to prove that there is a God. I don't think it's that I don't want him, that I'm rejecting him, not at all. I think the idea of God is great, and if it was true, then it would be fabulous. But I just don't see enough evidence that would tell me that there is a God. And at the same time, I don't think, I feel like this is a reasonable assertion. assertion. I think that God would recognize that there is enough evidence. I don't think he would judge me in whether I believe in him or not with this very few minimal, with, with such minimal evidence available to me. I don't think he could really say, well, you decided not to reject me when in fact there's just no reason for me to really accept him. Well, let me say something to wrap up this, our sixth session, as well as uh, circle back to something uh, we talked about the very first week. If you remember, uh, we said that Paul, the Apostle Paul, was originally a devout Orthodox Jew, and as, as a devout Orthodox Jew, he had serious major objections to Christianity. Uh, for example, he uh, could not imagine how the coming of Jesus would just do away with big parts of the Old Testament, the priesthood, the sacrifices. He struggled with the idea that a human being could be God. And yet, he actually did become a Christian, a Christian leader, overnight. How could that have happened? Wasn't because he got answers to all his questions or all of his objections. No, it, it couldn't have been. So how did it happen? He says it's because he came to believe uh, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He came to believe Jesus was resurrected. Now, that is very relevant to our topic tonight, Judgment Day. Because when we think of Judgment Day, we think almost always of just God's wrath and smiting people. But Judgment Day actually is putting everything right. The Bible says that when God comes back, he's going to end death, and he's going to end uh, disease and brokenness, and everything's going to be made perfect. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the first installment of that newness. And when Paul was convinced of that, he decided, even though he didn't have answers to all of his objections, that there must be answers. And so he was able to move ahead into Christianity.
Now, uh, I'm here to just say that that's where we all have to go. If we want to have an experience like Paul, it's important you have to look at Christianity. We've been talking about Christians, their behavior, philosophy. But ultimately, you need to go to what the Bible says about Jesus himself, his claims, his teaching, and his resurrection. If you're going to have an experience like Paul did, and when you look at the resurrection especially, we have to see the argument that there is no historically plausible alternate explanation for the birth of the Christian church other than the fact that hundreds of Jews have been conditioned all their lives not to believe that human beings to be God came to believe that Jesus was God because they actually saw him raised from the dead. That's the argument. So you should go there. If you're going to give Christianity a real look, you have to go there. So you have been terrific. You have been terrific. You've been terrific debaters. You've been terrific discussers. And uh, I just been, I'm so glad you participated and were a part of this. And so thank you very, very much for being with us for the reason for God. Thanks. Okay, nothing to talk about here, so we'll just move on. Oh man, so much, so much there. Where do you want to start? Yeah, Paul. <clears throat> they kept talking about things that I can do to for my salvation. Yep. When in fact there is absolutely nothing I can do for it. Okay, so there was a lot of talk about what things I can do for my salvation. I mean, I think the most arresting moment in that video was the young lady, right? Like I'm I, I'm prepared to take on the brunt of my sins. I was like, wow. She's now I think it's kind of fun seeing like the young people and the older ones in there. Like the the other guy at the end is like, I just think, you know, God's just going to know. There wasn't enough evidence. Like, God's going to be like, boy, I just dropped the ball. I didn't really give him enough. You know, he's going to see that. Um, so I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, George. The one thing that really stuck out, and I can't remember the exact words, that they said some people are just naturally good. Mm, yeah. Wow. Right. Yep. Right. right. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean that's a that's a common view, right? The naturally, uh, the naturally good. Right. Well, who determines who's good? Yes, and why why is it actually bad news if the message is all good people go to heaven? Why is that actually bad news? Because there's no such thing as a good person. Yeah, and how would I ever know that I'm one of them if there even if there were, right? The notion that good people go to heaven is, uh, I, that might sound nice or get you get around some challenges, but it, it ultimately is a council of despair. Yeah, Anne. The TV show, the, the Good Place, was a great illustration of this because yeah, that's right. like, it showed that people did like just these ubermensch things right. in order to get to the good place right. after death, and it's just exhausting. Yeah. Like, oh. Can't do it. No. That's, a, that's another good kind of pop culture reference where hell was a lot, they talked a lot more about hell and the, the good place and then uh, about the good place. Yeah, Bob. Well, if you're talking about good and people good, we have to be grading on a curve, right? Yes, right. <laughs> and, and we're watching right now in our public court system the demise of all sorts of genuine justice when we choose hmm. to grade on a curve in court. Hmm. And, and look what we're doing. Instead of recognizing evil is evil or bad is bad and 
dishing out a mislike of justice, mm -hmm. i.e. whatever that punishment might be or justice might be, it's all about rehabilitation. It's all an assumption that we're getting better and better, and we're always moving <coughs> on a curve, and, and look what it's doing. Yeah. It's not bringing people up. It's actually pulling society down to the point that Christians are saying, what's this all about? We're, we're losing the, the strength of that eternal punishment and kind of soft-pedaling than the temporary one in the process. Yeah, I don't want to go after curbing behavior because there's a hell. I'm sure there's a point to that. But the whole notion of justice has just been lost. Yeah. And hell really finally, unfortunately, his point was really good. God giving you what you want. Right. I wanted to live on my own my whole life. Yeah. I'm going to let you do that for eternity. Unfortunately, you'll be alone in that. I, yeah, I want to come back to that. I'm just reminded, Chip, maybe you heard this too. There's a podcast that Chip and I listened to, and they told a story recently along these lines about the Puritans. Um, I cannot verify this personally, but I heard it on the internet, so it must be true. Um, <laughs> that for the Puritans, if they had someone who had committed a crime, and then, you know, as they're about to go to the gallows, they're about to die, and they confess, they repent, they acknowledge their crime, then the whole community would come together and have a great feast with that person that night. They would come together and have this huge feast, and then the next day they'd kill him. Oh! <laughs> yeah, like, whoa! And it was this recognition, like, there is one more sinner has been saved eternally. There's still consequences in this life. Yeah. That doesn't go away. I was like, wow, okay. That's kind of taking that to the, but something to that. Yeah, man. I think in terms of Christianity and examining, we looked, there was one good person. Exactly. And we killed him. Yeah, yes, that's exactly right. There was one good person and we killed him. Bingo. So I want to pick up this idea, a couple of things that, that came out of there. I mean, there was some really good, rich conversation in there, actually. Um, but first of all, I want, to, I want to pick up on this idea of wrath and love, or if you will, loving wrath, right? It is this kind of paradoxical view. And I can't say that I ever thought about it, precisely how they put it in this, in this video, um, Pastor Keller, but even in the course of that, that kind of conversation. So somebody help me summarize, why is wrath not necessarily inherently opposed to love. How can these things actually go kind of hand in hand? Yeah, Lane. I use that all the time with my kids. I tell them. That's a parenting strategy, right? I wouldn't correct you <laughs> yeah. if I didn't care. Exactly, right. I wouldn't correct you if I didn't that's care. That's where the love comes from. Right. Is because, unfortunately, sometimes there's wrath about love in order to Sure, sure. This is yes, going to hurt me more than it It's going to hurt me more than it hurts you, right? <laughs> we all say it, yeah. The idea that the Yes. Yes. That was that song. Are you thinking the same song I am? Sure am. The opposite of love's indifference. If anybody else knows that song, please help me. No, no help. You're not gonna help. Okay. It's better to feel pain than nothing at all. Okay, sorry. But thank you. That. You, we were talking about this the other day. If you give me even just the littlest bit of a song, I'm going to start singing it, and there's nothing I can do about it. But this is exactly the case, right? Now, I think probably where some would quibble, just as they did in the videos, when you hear wrath, you think that it's more of just that kind of unhinged anger, right? Whereas, at least as 
Pastor Keller's trying to define it. He said, and you guys probably wrote this down too, a settled opposition to that which is destroying what we love, yeah. right? It's not, it's not crankiness, right? Uh, did I see a hand over here? Bob? That was a powerful statement um, that wrath is really addressing that which is hurting what we love. Yes. I mean, I think of the very straightforward, probably extraordinarily calm moment when Jesus said to the demons, go from him. Go. Mm -hmm. Leave this him. Leave him alone. Yeah. And, and to understand that's what wrath is. And, and he went on to say he loves this world. And think about all the destruction that's taking place on his creation. He'll put away anything. I mean, if someone came after my family, I'm not sure I'd be calm about it, but right. I definitely would be protecting that which yeah. I love yes. at all costs. Right. And, and to understand that and, and then to realize how profound sin is in terms of its destruction. It's not just the devil made me do it. I did it on my right. own, but sin is just the antithesis of all good. Uh, yeah, there's um, a theologian guy by the name of Cornelius Plantiga. He used to be the president down at Calvin College, Calvin University. And he has this wonderful definition of sin. He says that sin is the vandalism of shalom. And remember, shalom is that state of, of flourishing and wholeness, wellness, how God originally intended things to be. What makes sin sin isn't merely that it's breaking some arbitrary rules or something like that, but at the most essential core level, it's vandalizing shalom. It's destroying that sense of here's the way things are originally intended to be and will be again. So then this notion of, of wrath in it, we see how it need not be um, contradictory in any way uh, as an antithesis to love. In fact, they can go hand in hand. Now, to be sure, as humans, like as humans, we don't want to let ourselves off the hook here. Like when we're filled with wrath, like my wrath is perfectly just and justified. Like more often than not, we've got other things going on there, right? But when it comes to God, when it comes to God, we can trust him and we can trust those divine emotions, if you will. But that leads us to the point that, that Bob had raised before, that then ultimate judgment is God handing us over. And I want, if you've got your scripture, let's look at the, the passage that he had referenced there because I think it's, it's important. Romans chapter 1. Okay. Um, so this is the uh, Romans chapter 1, and it's interesting. I want to start just a little bit before the, the section in question to verse 16. Okay. It says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. Then conversely, it goes right into verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they're without excuse. All right, going down then, verse 24, this is kind of the, the, that key phrase. He says, therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. God gave them up. And actually, the, the word there, the Greek word, is the same word that's used in the Gospels to describe that handing over of our Lord. It's that same kind of 
of betrayal, if you will. And so here you, you see the heartbreak of the father who he's saying, ah, if, this is what, if this is the way that you're going to go, fine, okay. I mean, he, it's not his desire for anyone. Um, but here I have to, to quote a famous line from C.S. Lewis in, in The Great Divorce. Um, and if you recall, Great Divorce is this kind of allegory that Lewis does of a vision of, of hell and, and heaven. And uh, the, uh, he's got the, the, the man who's there, he's the visitor there, and he's, he's wondering about, um, what about the, the poor ghosts who never get on the bus at all and go to heaven as poor? He says, everyone who wishes it does, never fear. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Mm -hmm. this, this is the idea. Is that, um, is that an idea of judgment? Is that, does that strike a chord for you? Does that seem more fair or less fair, more just, less just? How, how does that square with your um, conventional idea of justice for yourself or what you see kind of just in the, the culture in general? Yeah, Jana. Past spring, I um, heard Pastor Bruzic say that, I don't know if it was Teresa, someone or other, says, hell is letting you be by yourself. <laughs> that you are just like in a, yeah. I imagined like a little section in a wall dug out. Right. And there you are. Right. And this is kind of, yeah, just letting you, letting you be by yourself, handing you over to that. And that's why I think Tolkien is kind of playing with this idea in Lord of the Rings with the character of Gollum, too. Gollum has just become so, he, he's become a, um, a counterfeit of his, himself because he's so just involved in, in himself. And his idol has taken over his life, his precious, right? Yeah, that's it's a chilling notion. Moister cults, don't fear the reaper. <laughs> don't, don't fear the reaper, fear yourself. But when that gal was talking how she can take claim for all her sins. Right, yeah. It's like, give me a break. You, you, she, they, they don't have any concept of what they're even talking about. It was about. a bold claim. I don't, I've never heard anybody be that yeah, blunt. I mean, she doesn't even, she doesn't even know what she doesn't know. Yes, you right. Know, it, it's just so sad to hear somebody say something so Right. Right in the face of God. It's, it's just... Right. It's, yeah, it's profoundly misled. Yeah, Ben, you were going to say? I was just going to say, we certainly deserve God's wrath. And yet, he hung on the cross, yes. and he said, Father, forgive them. Yep. They don't know what they're doing. That's the way I see it. Well, and this is such an important point, too. And I tried to raise this in a sermon a few weeks ago when we looked at those words of Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? Um, because you, you heard it reflected in a couple of the comments in there. The default idea is like, no, we're all basically good, right? And everything's fine. And so it's unfair of God to just kind of say arbitrarily, okay, you're out, you're going to hell, you're going to heaven. Fact of the matter is thing is things are not all just fine. We're all not all just naturally good. The house is on fire and thanks be to God, he's actually come in to bring us out. And woe betide us if we say, well, wait a second. You've come in through an open window, but why couldn't we also have the door and the cellar open too? 
Or, you know, why, why did only one fireman come to save me? Can't I just pick my fire? You know, um, we need to, a proper recognition of how bad things are for us also to be able to receive the, the salvation and the rescue. Yeah. Um, he talked about Judgment Day and how it can actually be good news. So what's, what can be good about Judgment Day? Oh, gosh. Even if we're Christians and, and we believe in it, it can still sound like, oh, that sounds like a bummer. Yeah, Judgment Day. We don't really want to talk about that. But he brought out some ways in which actually it, it can be good, it can be a, a liberating message that's important for us to believe in. So what, how can Judgment Day be good news? Some of us won't suffer anymore. Okay. The, the end of suffering. Putting to rights. Yeah. What's that? Freedom. Oh, freedom. Okay. Yeah. For all things created. Right. Um, that it's not just we who are then justified and yeah. redeemed and saved. Right. It is all of the broken things around us yes. that are being made new. Yeah. God putting his world back together. That's good news. Uh, we And it's interesting, like there is that, that long, that thirsting for justice, I think, in our, our culture right now, that in many respects we can affirm. Say, you know what? That's a good thing. Let me show you how that justice is truly realized in God's truth, in God's ways. That's where things sometimes go, go apart. But seeing all things put back together. What about this idea that um, apart from just, how did, how did he put it? That no judgment leads to retaliation. He quoted some Eastern European scholars. That if there isn't a judgment day, that that can lead to re- cycles of retaliation. You think that's true? I mean, I think it, parents would all say, yeah. I notice this in my kids, that if they are assured and confident that dad's going to deal with the situation, right? There has been some harm. There's been some injustice done. If they are certain dad's going to deal with it, they're willing to step back and say, okay, all right, I trust you, dad. But if they think, you know what, dad's going to do that thing again with mercy, he's not, or he's just going to turn a blind eye to it and not really deal with it. That's when they're like, you know what? I better take this into my own hands. <laughs> Anybody else see that? Sure. Uh, um, I think that there, there's a lot of truth to that. That when we recognize, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Right? When we believe that, take that to heart, then we can release and relinquish calls and cries for vengeance, for us to have vengeance. Leave it to the Lord. Lord, we need you to sort this out. Yeah, yeah, one of the things about Judgment Day that helps me when I just look at the profound downward spiral, I, mean, I can get extremely um, um, discouraged. Yeah. I'm looking at what our society is doing to our children now. It's profound. They, they gave them all these empty cisterns. They go drink from them. They're good. They're good. And children have... They, they can't know their right from their left, and, and they're drinking in these things because our society is telling them it's good. And I think, Lord, what are you going to do with this? Yeah. And, and if you feel you're on your own in this, and then in the end, he's not going to put things to right, it's, it's, it's profoundly discouraging. Right, yeah. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a psalm, the psalmist cries out, the foundation, what can the righteous do when the foundations are shaped? David comes back and says, he's the Lord. Yep. 
and the fact he is finally in charge and says enough's enough, I'm done with this, and I am bringing my new creation, that reality is, is quite frankly a singular hope. That's it. This past Thursday, of course, was Ascension Day, celebrated Ascension Day this week, and um, this is the key point theologically about Ascension, is that um, Jesus ascends <clears throat> to the right hand of the Father. This is his coronation day, right? We got up early, watched the coronation of King, King Charles III the other, a couple of weeks ago. Um, this was the coronation day, is the, the ascension of our Lord Jesus, that now he is at the right hand of the Father and he reigns. Because he reigns, and he's going to come again to judge the quick and the dead, as we say in the creed, we can have confidence and know in the midst of the, of the chaos and wondering what is going on with this world, so rife with injustice and pain, to know that ultimately he is going to put it all to right. That's the really only source of peace and, frankly, sanity in the midst of it all. I think that this has been a really enriching and edifying conversation over the course of these six weeks. I'm glad that you guys participated in it, and I hope that um, it gave you a taste of uh, what's sometimes called apologetics or just going deeper in terms of what do we believe and why do we believe it. There's so much there. Um, if you're interested in, in more resources, um, I'd be happy to provide those for you. Certainly the works of Tim Keller, not least his book, Reason for God, as well as C.S. Lewis, starting with Mere Christianity and all the way down. Um, but there's a lot, a lot available here, and I just want to encourage you in that. But most of all, thank you for participating in this conversation. Hope you've been blessed by it, and we'll get back to Sunday morning Bible study in the fall. I look forward to it then. Thank you, guys. God bless.